Every Sunday, we preach and teach the Word of God. We preach a sermon. And alongside that, we also set apart the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by reading from God's Word. It's important before we partake of the Supper to set it apart and remind ourselves just briefly of some of its significance. But we're going to do things just slightly different today. Uh, today, uh, because our text is going to be focused so much on the crucifixion and on the death of Christ and what it means for us, what it does for us, what it is for us, then we are actually going to use our entire sermon, if you will, as essentially a, a, a kind of preface, a prefatory word to the Lord's Supper. So what that means is that we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper immediately following the sermon and then we'll sing our final hymn after we break bread today. So I just wanted to give you a heads up of uh, we are going to change our liturgy, liturgy just a little bit today. And of course, we're asking that the Lord would use the preaching of his word this more Lord's Day morning to prepare our hearts for the Eucharist. With that said, would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And we are going to read only verses 1 and 2 together. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And if you would, please stand so that we can show reverence for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Thus saith the Lord, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. There seems to be widespread agreement in all of the commentaries that I read, and I am of this opinion too, uh, that it, the, where chapter 5 breaks the text was a poor place for the Bible editors to break the text. Uh, the two verses that we just read really more properly belongs at the end of chapter 4 rather than starting a new chapter. It is the summary of everything we preached two weeks ago in chapter 4. It's really not a new thought so much as it is just sort of ending and summarizing a lengthy section of chapter 4. And so let me just briefly sum up what Paul is saying here, and it's going to sound very similar to what we have been saying throughout chapter 4, that Paul has yet again called us to holiness. He has called us to become imitators of God. And that is what it means to become holy. When you become holy, you're becoming more like God. God himself tells us in his word, you are to be holy as I am holy. But, but yet again, it never ceases to amaze me how Constantly, Paul, even, even though he's already covered the gospel in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and he's now focused on holy living, he still just relentlessly makes sure to remind us that our moral obedience is a cause of the gospel. He always reminds us of what I'm calling our gospel motivations to be holy. He never, ever even wants to come close to making it look like he's saying, be holy in order for God to accept you. But he always reminds us that we are holy as a cause of being accepted. And that's what he does in this text in multiple ways. He first tells us that we are to be holy as beloved children. Not to be beloved children, but because we already are. As is the case with any family, children are supposed to model their parents. And that is how and why we are to be holy. God has adopted us into his family 
And that makes him our father. We are now his children. We are beloved children of the father. And what do children do? They learn from their parents. They obey their parents. And they become like their parents. This is why we have expressions in the English language such as, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Or even maybe more appropriately, like father, like son. These expressions recognize that children tend to imitate their parents and become like them. And so because the thrust of chapter 4 was to become like God, he's, he's summarized and he's picked up on that here. God has adopted you into his family, so become like your father. Imitate God in heaven. In other words, Christianity is a like father, like son religion. We are children who imitate our father. Because we're children, we now have both the ability and the imperative to become like God. You see, I don't have the ability to become like someone else's father because I don't know them. Nor do I have the imperative because I haven't submitted to their authority. But once we are adopted into God's family by the gospel, by grace, we now are able to be like God and we are commanded to be like God. And so we need to model our lives like God. And Paul then immediately tells us in verse 2 that the way to accomplish this is by modeling Christ. So the thesis, the thrust of this short two verses, if you will, is that we must, because we are children of God, imitate Christ. As children of God, we imitate Christ. Uh, but I find something interesting in Paul commending us to imitate God through imitating Christ. And what I find so interesting is, is the role that the crucifixion plays in these short two verses. I, just, I think it's incredibly powerful the way Paul, in, a, in two verses where he's telling us to live like God, to live like Christ, sort of drags the crucifixion in and, and makes it a key a foundational principle in order for us to become holy. And so we're going to focus on that detail. It may seem like a minor detail, but I think it's very, very important. So what we're going to do, as I briefly stated already in our sermon, is we're going to look at three things that the Apostle Paul tells us about the crucifixion in this text. Three functions, if you will, that the death of Christ serves for us. There are three functions that the death of Christ has for God's beloved children. And so we are going to look at those today. The first one is this. The death of Christ is an act of love. The death of Christ is an act of love. Read verse 2 with me. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ loves us. He loves you. He loves the children of God. And the chief way that he has proven his love to you, the chief and final definitive proof of the love that Christ has for you is found in the fact that he, as Paul says, gave himself up for us. I just ask, what, what should make our hearts swell with more joy and more comfort than knowing that the God who made heaven and earth loves us more than we can comprehend? Now, this might seem a little too basic to comfort you. It's, it's, sometimes it's hard to be comforted by cliches. It's hard to be comforted by things we've heard a million times. I mean, be honest, how many times have you gone to church on Sunday to be told that God loves you? 
It's almost become a cliche, but I, I want to encourage us to see if, if we really think about it practically, this is really not as basic as it might sound. I think that it's important to be reminded that God loves us each and every week because you might be surprised how often you forget it. I think many of us might be surprised at how it is a regular occurrence for Christians to actually lose sight of the love of God. What happens is, see, we encounter the pains and the struggles of our lives and we know that God is in control of these things. We know that God is providentially above these things. And so when we're in these things that we know God can control and he's not doing anything about it, we just tend to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pains and the evils of this life do tempt us to doubt the love of God. In fact, it's just a funny story. Layla and I got to celebrate our anniversary uh, visiting my sister, my brother-in-law in San Antonio, Texas the week before last. And we had to go to a Walmart to get some things for our trip. And I was approached by a phone salesman there. He was trying to sell me a plan. And uh, I, I, I was able to sort of get out of it by God's grace by not being from Texas. Uh, but God showed an even greater grace in that he very easily by his spirit led this into a gospel conversation. He, he asked me what I did for a living and when I told him I was a pastor he started asking me about denom which denomination and he made it seem as if he was either a Christian or he had some kind of Christian background. So I asked him like are you a Christian? And he very bluntly, very forthrightly told me no I, I walked away from that a long time ago. And I asked him why. And again, in, in, in incredible transparency, he told me, you know, I had, a, I had a very, very, very rough childhood. And my mother was a very devout Christian woman, and she taught me to pray. If there was anything my mother did, she taught me to pray. And my life was miserable, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And I don't think God ever answered a single one of my prayers. And then what I think really broke the straw that broke the camel's back was at a very early age, the very mother who taught him to pray was taken from him. He lost his mother. And he said something I couldn't believe how, how, how blunt he was being, and I really loved and appreciated it. He said, you know, my mom taught me to be a Christian. She taught me to pray, but especially after she died, I just walked away because it became convincingly clear to me that God just simply doesn't care much for me. Really, I, I just don't think God loves me very much. So he told me I, I kind of have a, a love-hate relationship with Christianity now. I think there's some good to it, but I don't think God cares much for me. If he does, he hasn't shown it, right? And this is why Ephesians 5.2 is emphatically not a cliche. This is not basic. This is literally life-giving. What we have here is a definitive, objective way to ascertain whether or not God loves me. If, if we try to measure the love of God based on subjective things, we will be sorely disappointed. If God is always, if God always answering my prayers and giving me everything I want is the sign of his love for me, then yes, I'm going to feel very unloved throughout most of my life. If God never allowing me to fall into painful circumstances is how God proves his love for me, then yes, every time I'm in a painful circumstance, which is for a lot of people every day, I'm not going to feel very loved by God. 
But you see, what I had to end up telling this gentleman is it sounds like you walked away from a God someone told you about, but not the God as the Bible presents himself to us. Because, you see, God does not tell us that we are to measure his love in giving us whatever we want, whenever we want. The Bible does not even tell us that we are to measure God's love by how comfortable our lives is. The Bible doesn't promise us a comfortable life. It doesn't promise us answered prayer. But the Bible does give us something that objectively shouts what God thinks of you. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or as Romans 5.8 says, I have this on the screen for you. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, you don't have to base your knowledge of Christ's love for you on subjective feelings which constantly change. But the objective, unchanging historical fact that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. What greater act of love, I ask, can there be? Laying down your life for someone is a greater act of love than answering their prayer. Laying down your life for someone is a greater act of love than never allowing them to feel pain. Jesus himself tells us this in John 15, 3, which I also have for you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christ Jesus has shown you the greatest act of love that he could possibly show you. That he took on flesh just to die for sinners like you and for me. Maybe some of you today have felt forsaken this week. Maybe you've not felt very much like the Lord cares much for you at all. But that is why we come to the table every week. That is why you need to come to the Lord's Supper as often as possible. Because when you do, you come and you see the death of Christ on your behalf. And in that, in looking at his broken body and his spilled blood, you see his love for you. Come and see in the broken body, in the shed blood of Christ, taste his love for you. The death of Christ is an act of love. But since it is an act of love, then it also makes it simultaneously a moral example for us. The death of Christ is a moral example. That's our second point. If Christ's love is proved through sacrifice, then we ought to show love through sacrifice. The Apostle John makes this point in 1 John 3.16, if you'll read this with me. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see the connection he makes? Christ Jesus shows love for us through sacrifice, and so if we are to, as Ephesians 5 tells us, to walk in love like Christ, that means we are going to sacrifice. The crucifixion teaches us how to love. It teaches us a moral example to live our lives. It gives us a template, for you will, of how we are to love our neighbor. Let's read the text again. Verse, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So first, Paul tells us to imitate God. That's a way of life. Live your lives the way God would live his life. But this can be a difficult question right? God is not a man. God is not a human being like you and me. 
God doesn't exist in this reality in the way that you and I exist in this reality. How could I possibly know how God would live? How do I know how to live like God? Certainly, he's given us his law, which is unbelievably helpful. It's a huge blessing. But the answer to the question, how then should we live? How do I imitate God? The biblical answer to that question is primarily Jesus Christ. That's what the incarnation is. Jesus Christ took on flesh to reveal the Father to us, to be the fullness of revelation of who God is. If you want to know how to imitate Christ, or forgive me, how to imitate God, then look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. He took on flesh and became a man so that we could have a very clear picture of what human godliness looks like. And this is exactly why Paul so quickly, seamlessly transitions in verse 1 from God the Father to, in verse 2, Jesus Christ. Right? He doesn't even explain it. He just transitions. Imitate God. Walk like Christ. Well, which one should we do? It's the same thing. To live like Christ is to live like God. To walk in the love of Christ is to imitate God. And so again, what Paul is teaching us here is that Christ is the moral example for how we should live. Let his life teach you and show you how to be like God. It reminds me of when I was a young teenager and evangelicalism was kind of taking off and becoming popular in the mainstream. Something that just was incredibly popular. I don't know how many of you remember this. Incredibly popular were WWJD bracelets. I remember you basically weren't a Christian, okay, if you weren't wearing a W. I doubted your salvation if you were not wearing a WWJD bracelet. That's just how popular they were. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but what happened, I don't remember the organization, but these little bracelets were created, and on them was just typed the acronym WWJD, which means, what would Jesus do? Now, I used to criticize these things really heavily, and a lot of the people that were in kind of my theological circles criticized them heavily. But as I began to reflect back, Sometimes I think they got a lot more criticism than they deserved. I think anytime something becomes popular in evangelical pop culture, it becomes annoying, so we don't like it. But quite honestly, um, no matter how much you want to nuance and, and get theologically picky, that's really not a bad reminder to have on your wrist every day. Right? How would Jesus love today? Go love like that. How would Jesus respond to this situation? Go be like that. It's really not a bad thing to be reminded. What would Jesus do? Because the Bible is emphatically clear over and over again that he is the moral example for us. If you want to be like the Father, then you need to live like Christ. What would Jesus do? Paul knows that Christ's entire life and ministry is teaching us how to be like God. But to make it especially relevant for our sermon today, I want us to notice that Paul does something else in this ex exhortation. Obviously, Paul knows that the entire life of Christ is the model for how to live like God. But Paul s singles out one moment of Christ's life as sort of the pinnacle of revelation. Right? I don't have time in this letter to remind you of everything Christ ever did. But let me remind you of the greatest, most important example we have ever been given for how to live. And what is it? Verse 2 and walk in love as Christ loved us. And what's the greatest example of Christ's love? He gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, Paul is telling us that the crucifixion specifically teaches us how to live our lives. The death of Christ is a moral example. 
Now you might be asking, what could I possibly learn from the crucifixion? Right? The crucifixion was the perfect Son of God atoning for the sins of the world. I can't do that. What does the crucifixion teach me? It teaches us lots of things. I just want us to look at two of those things. First and foremost, Paul is very clearly here that, the, that as we saw in 1 John as well, the crucifixion teaches us to love through sacrifice. We are to love through sacrificial kind of love. That means that in order to properly love one another in this church, that means that sometimes we're going to have to give up our possessions to do that. You know, it, it would be, a lot of your secular friends have more money than you because they're not asked and required to bring money up front every single week. That's an act of love for each other. That's a sacrificial offering. You give something up, which is yours rightfully, for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Sometimes we have to give up our possessions to love each other. Sometimes we have to give up our time. Sometimes we have to give up our conveniences. And by the way, in rare circumstances, by the grace of God, sometimes we even have to give up our lives. If we are going to love each other the way Christ loves, it requires sacrifice. The cross teaches us to love through sacrificial living. But there are lots of other things we can learn just from the cross itself. Let me give you one that the Apostle Peter gives to us. It's a long text, but you don't have to turn there. I've got it on the screen for you. Read this longer text with me. From 1 Peter chapter 2. He's actually speaking to slaves in this context who have really cruel and harsh masters. And here's what he tells slaves who are being unjustly abused all the time. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's the moral example. And what is the example he left us? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed." So you see, the cross teaches us how to bless our enemies rather than curse them. The cross teaches us to be persecuted in a righteous way. The cross teaches us to continue in holiness even when we're being punished for it. And we could go on and on and on, but I think you get the example. The cross is a moral example for how we are to live our lives. And so when you approach the Lord's Supper today, I want you to see in the Eucharist your new life. Do not come to this table expecting to be the same person when you walk away from it. But come to this table remembering that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, live like him. We remember in the Lord's Supper that we are being transformed and made into the image of Christ because of his sacrifice and the example he has left us. So the first thing we see is that the crucifixion is an act of love. The second thing we see is that the death of Christ is a moral example. The third, but certainly not last thing that Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, the death of Christ is a substitutionary sacrifice. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but the words are actually very important. The death of Christ is a substitutionary sacrifice. As the text says, Christ gave himself up for us. 
So there's an element of substitution here, right? He did something for you and for me. This wasn't for him. This was for us. But that sort of raises the question, how was it for us? Like what, what benefit do we get from the Son of God dying on a cross? And this is why Paul sort of clarifies in what sense it was for us. And how does he say it? Look at the end of verse 2. That he gave himself up for us. What do you mean? Meaning he gave a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ died in our place as a sacrifice on our behalf to pay the debt of sin that we owe to God. This is the doctrine known as substitutionary atonement. It's also sometimes referred to as penal substitution. It's a big phrase, but it's really somewhat simple. Substitutionary atonement, again, is simply the doctrine that Jesus Christ died in your place. He died the death that your sin makes you deserving of. He, according to the law, you were worthy of the wrath and punishment of God, and Jesus Christ, as your substitute, stepped in and took on that wrath, became a propitiation of the wrath of God according to the law so that God might be the just and the justifier. You see, Christ is the substitute for us. He died to forgive our sins and appease the wrath of God. And, and I want to teach you how Paul makes this substitutionary nature of the atonement uh, found very, very clear in this text, specifically by referring to it as a fragrant offering. Isn't that language kind of bizarre? What's a fragrance? It's a smell. So is Paul here telling us that the crucifixion smelled good to God? That's kind of weird, kind of grotesque. What does it mean that Jesus' death was a fragrant, pleasing aroma to God in heaven? Well, what Paul is doing here is he's actually borrowing common language from the Old Testament. He is linking Christ to the Old Testament in this text. The Old Testament regularly spoke of sacrifices which were made to God as sacrifices which were a fragrant offering or maybe it might say a pleasing aroma. The first time, as far as I know, maybe it happened earlier, but I'm pretty sure the first time this happens is after the flood, after the waters subside, Noah, out of thankfulness to God, offers a sacrifice to worship him. And notice how the text describes the sacrifice. I have it for you from Genesis 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So we have this very ancient sacrifice, a sacrifice that predates Moses. And God says, it smelled good. The, 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 the smoke metaphorically of the burning, metaphorically rose up to heaven and God metaphorically smelled that sacrifice and was pleased by it. So when the Bible speaks of a sacrifice which is a fragrance or a pleasing aroma to God, it's a metaphor that God delights in it. It's a metaphor that God is especially pleased by it. So back in Ephesians 5, what's Paul trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that when Christ offered this sacrifice to God, God accepted it. He loved it. He delighted in it. It smelled good. But I am arguing that we're to see even beyond that. 
Yes, Paul is certainly telling us that, that God the Father accepted and enjoyed Christ's sacrificial offering. But I think it's telling us more. And the reason I think that is because the vast majority of time this language is utilized in the Old Testament is within the law of Moses. In Moses' law, the very law that the Bible tells us Christ came to fulfill, it speaks of all different kinds of sacrifices, some of them as being a pleasing aroma or a pleasing fragrance to God. I want to just give you a couple of examples just so you'll see that it's, it's quite prevalent. This just comes from two chapters of the book of Leviticus. And you could multiply it throughout the book of Leviticus. But look with me at just a handful of verses from two chapters of Leviticus. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And bring the grain offering to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take it from a handful of the fine flour and oil, with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Lastly, as an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. So just in Leviticus 1 and 2, we have this regular occurrence of some offerings are pleasing fragrance to God and some aren't. There's these extra important ones which are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this is found all throughout Leviticus, all throughout the Old Testament and, and the law of Moses. And so what's the connection I'm making here? In short, what Paul is doing in Ephesians 5 is he is explaining what it means that Christ laid down his life for us, is he is connecting Christ's sacrifice as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifice. He's telling us this was what the law was pointing to. And here's why that's so important. Because the Old Testament sacrifices were substitutionary. Israel sinned, and the way that their sins were, we could say, forgiven in some sense, was by offering pure clean, unblemished sacrifices on the altar. This was a substitutionary system. You've sinned, but we will take it out, so to speak, on the lamb, the unblemished lamb. The, the sins were imputed to the lamb, and then God forgave Israel. So when Paul is linking us to the Old Testament, he's teaching us that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament laws. And so what that means is that his death was substitutionary for you. In the same way that Israel's sins were imputed to the Lamb, now the people of God, now their sins are imputed to the Lamb. He died for your sins. All of the blood ever spilled on Jewish altars were all types and prophecies and shadows of the true high priest who would offer the true and final sacrifice which would actually forgive sins. Now, this is a clear teaching quite literally throughout the entire Bible, and it's very, very clear throughout the entire book of Hebrews, but we're just going to look at, look at one very lengthy passage together. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 9? Hebrews chapter 9, this is very lengthy, what we're about to read, but I will have little commentary on it, so don't panic. But there is so much important stuff in here we're going to bring out. We're going to see the way Christ's crucifixion 
was a fulfillment of the Old Testament ceremonial sacrifices. And we're going to see how Christ's crucifixion was a substitution of atonement on behalf of us to forgive us our sins. Begin with me in verse 11. Verse 11, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes place only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified without blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. As I said, that was long, and there's so much we could say, but I just want to emphasize again these two things. Did you notice how the passage all throughout includes this language of substitution? On our behalf, his death forgives our sins. The passage emphasizes things like the blood of Christ will purify our conscience. That a death has occurred that redeems us from our transgressions. That Christ's blood forgave not his sins, but ours. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It told us that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Again, this is all clear language of substitutionary atonement. He stood in your place and he made the atonement for your sins. But notice also that Christ's death is clearly a fulfillment of the entire Jewish sacrificial system. That's, by the way, why we don't do these things anymore. That's why when you come to church, I'm not going to offer lambs and rams up here. Because we have Christ, the better sacrifice. 
The text tells us it identifies the cross as an altar. It identifies heaven as the new temple, the new tabernacle, the new holy of holies. It identifies Christ as the high priest. And it identifies Christ as offering himself as his own sacrifice, which is unblemished. Again, Christ's death was not just substitutionary atonement. It was the fulfillment of the substitutionary system of the Old Testament. To summarize, Christ is the true sacrifice, the true substitute, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Believe it or not, there are many who reject this doctrine. The reasons for it are numerous. But the fact remains that this is a very plain teaching of Scripture. One has to have an agenda to get around the idea that Jesus Christ died and had to die in order for our sins to be forgiven. One of the reasons why some have tried to reject this, a popular reason in American 21st century life, is you will hear the claim sometimes that this turns God into a God no better than the pagan deities. Right? Because the pagan deities, all throughout the Old Testament, they were the ones, those were the gods, who required child sacrifice to be appeased. So we Christians, we're pagans now, aren't we? I mean, I'm teaching you a God who cannot be appeased unless you slaughter an innocent child. Uh, but this comparison does not work for many reasons. But the one I want us to draw our attention to is the one that Paul draws our attention to. Go back to Ephesians 5. Look again at verse 2 with me. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's interesting about this is that typically in Scripture, if you were to read through the New Testament, the vast majority of the time that the Bible speaks of divine love, usually the Father is in view. Usually when the Bible is talking about God loving you, it's talking about the Father loving you in Christ. But here, the Bible here has one of these rare circumstances where it specifies Christ's love for you. Right? Verse 2 says, Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Now, why is this relevant? It's relevant for us because it is the personal love that Christ had for us which caused him to lay down his life. And so this reminds us that Christ's crucifixion was something he gladly embraced. This was his choice. It was something he was happy to do. He laid his own life down. Jesus, by the way, makes this crystal clear in the Gospel of John. I have this on the screen for you. He says in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. You see, Christ's substitutionary death is nothing like pagan sacrifice. It's nothing like child sacrifice because Christ, who is, by the way, not a child, he was a full-grown man. But contrary to the pagan systems where young children, young virgins were taken away against their will and forced to be sacrificed, Christ's death is nothing like that. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. And why did he do it? Ephesians 5.2, because he loves. 
This is not pagan worship. This is not child sacrifice. This is a grown man, the God-man, filled with so much love for his people that he laid his own life down gladly as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He willingly laid down his life for us. And so as we approach the table to partake, we are told by Jesus to do this in remembrance of him. What are we remembering? Well, our sermon gave us three things before we partake. Remember that God loves you. See in his broken body and shed blood the love that Christ has for you, which led him to the cross. See also a moral example for your life. See in the Eucharist the power of God to transform us into the image of Christ. See the freedom from the bondage to sin and the enslavement to the righteousness of God. And finally, a third thing to remember, remember the forgiveness of your sins. See in the Eucharist your great high priest make himself his own offering to God. See your substitute sacrificed in your place to pay for the penalty of your sins. See him become a curse on your behalf. See him who knew no sin be made sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. In other words, see the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world.